0: Um, if you have a Bible with you, can I encourage you to open it to Zechariah chapter twelve? Zechariah chapter twelve. We're picking up uh, where we left off uh, last week. Zechariah will be testing, no doubt, many of your your memories of sword drill from BB or GB. Uh, it's a little book towards the back of the Old Testament. I'm going to read the whole chapter. Here here, listen to Zechariah chapter twelve, let's hear God speak. The oracle of this word of the Lord concerning Israel. Thus declares the Lord, who stretched out the heavens and founded the earth, and formed the spirit of man within him. Behold, I am about to make Jerusalem a cup of staggering to all the surrounding peoples. The siege of Jerusalem will also be against Judah. On that day I will make Jerusalem a heavy stone for all the peoples. All who lift it will surely hurt themselves, and all the nations of the earth will gather against it. On that day declares the Lord, I will strike every horse with panic and its rider with madness, but for the sake of the house of Judah I will keep my eyes open and I will strike every and I will strike Sorry, I've lost my place. For the sake of the house of Judah, I will keep my eyes open. I will strike the horses of the peoples with blindness. Then the clans of Judah shall say to themselves, The inhabitants of Jerusalem have strength through the Lord of hosts, their God. On that day, I will make the clans of Judah like a blazing pot in the midst of wood, like a flaming torch among sheaves. And they will devour to the right and to the left all the surrounding nations, while Jerusalem shall again be inhabited. In its place in Jerusalem. And the Lord will give salvation to the tents of Judah first, that the glory of the house of David and the glory of the inhabitants of Jerusalem may not surpass that of Judah. On that day, the Lord will protect the inhabitants of Judah, so that the feeblest among them on that day shall be like David, and the house of David shall be like God, like the angel of the Lord going before them. And on that day, I will seek to destroy. All the nations that come against Jerusalem. And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him, as one mourns for an only child, and weeps bitterly over him, as one weeps over a firstborn. On that day, the mourning in Jerusalem will be as great as the morning in Harad Remon in the plain of Megiddo. The land shall mourn each family by itself, the family of the house of David by itself and their wives by themselves, the family of the house of Nathan by itself and their wives by themselves, the family of the house of Levi by itself and their wives by themselves, the family of the Shemites by themselves and their wives by themselves." And all the families that are left, each by itself and their wives by themselves. On that day, there shall be a, a fountain opened for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. This is the word of the Lord. Will we take a moment and pray? Let's pray. Father, as you speak to us through your word, and we come to look at it now, would your spirit soften our hearts? Would he open our eyes? Would he give us ears that hear, that we may be shaped and molded by your word and what it says to us? For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. In my opinion, this is probably one of the most exciting passages of the Old Testament. And I think it's because picking up from what something William said last week, we've got to the section of Zechariah that is really wanting us to to look forward to something, to fix our gaze on something that's just beyond our sight, to try and point to us how Jesus will resolve so many of the issues that are beginning to present themselves. And in this passage, and I know part of it sounded a lot like you know, those obscure parts of the Old Testament where whenever we read them on our own or whenever we hear them read, we're like, what is going on here? And it can sound confusing. There's a battle. There's lots of people being destroyed and there's mourning. And whilst the battle section is important, um, I don't want to necessarily go into that first of all this morning. Instead, I want us to, to look at that second section of the chapter that we read, starting from verse 10, where we see something wonderful being promised We see one who is pierced, and we see repentance on display as well. Promise, a piercing, and repentance. If you look down with me in verse 10, the first thing we see is that promise that is given to us through this passage. That God will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy. God will pour out. Whenever whenever we read that word pour in the Bible, what often is being alluded to is the idea of God pouring out his Holy Spirit. If we read in Isaiah 44 verse 3, it says that, God says, I will pour out water on the thirsty land and streams of dry ground, and I will pour out my spirit on my offspring and blessings on my descendants. Or in Ezekiel 39, it says, I will no longer hide my face from them, for I will pour out my spirit on them. Or in Joel two twenty-eight, that's famously quoted on the day of Pentecost. I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. Whenever we read this pouring, it's always, always linked to the idea of God's spirit being poured out on his people in a way of blessing. And it's a way of reminding us that the good news we believe as Christians is not that God gives us presence from on high like a celestial Santa Claus. The promise and the hope that we believe as Christians is not that we live good lives that are filled with relative peace and good health and not too much trouble. But the promise that is given to us in the Bible is not riches here on earth, nor a good time here on earth, but it is that we get to know God. Because God is pouring Himself out, His Holy Spirit on His people. That that is the promise of this passage. And that's the promise of the Bible. It's not that you get stuff, it's not that you have a quiet life. It's not that life will be easy. It's not that the doctor will always come bearing good news. But it's that you get to know God. You get to know God. And we live in a world that is searching for many, many things. And it may not want to find them in God, but the reality is, is that for so many of us, we are searching to fill, as the French philosopher Blaise Pascal said, the hole that's been left by God in its wake. You know, why do we spend so many hours at the office? Because we're trying to prove that we're really good at our jobs to fill the void that we feel of not knowing that we're right with God? Why do we try and make sure that we've got the security of enough, th- enough money in our bank account to get us through to retirement? Because really we believe that there has to be some sort of assurance out there somewhere, and we think money will offer it. And all it takes is a few more pence per litre for us all to panic wildly about that. We are all searching for something, whether we want to admit it or not. As the writer, David Foster Wallace, who wasn't a Christian said at a university in America one year, we are all worshiping something. And if that thing is not God or some spiritual force, it will eat us alive. We are all worshiping something. We are all searching for something. And if it's not God, we are setting ourselves up to be sorely disappointed. But we see if you look on in this passage that there's this promise, yes, of God pouring out himself, but whenever he pours out his Holy Spirit, there's something that comes with it, which is pleas of mercy, or as some of your translations might say, supplication. And what that's driving at is that whenever God's Spirit comes, the actual want of wanting God comes with it. Whenever we plead to God or make supplication before God, it is a pouring out of our hearts before God. And the spirit that gets us to do that, to pray to God in the first place, comes from God himself, and that's why it's a spirit of grace as well, because this spirit that comes isn't, isn't something that we have earned, it's something that God bestows out of Grace. It's not that you need to earn God's favor in some way. It's not that in order to want more of God, you have to whip up your emotions in such a way that you long for more. It's not that you, you need to try and reconcile in your head some intellectual argument and then God will come. God gives it by grace. And this is the promise that we have, that by grace, God gives himself to us By sending his Holy Spirit into our hearts. But what enables him to do that? And that's where the second thing we see, the one who's pierced, is so important. And I really, if you don't have a Bible open, like, get out your phone and look this up. Because I really want you to grapple with what this passage has to say to you this morning. And I know there are many of you here who are automatically, going, automatically in your heads going, right, who is the one who is pierced? I know, Sunday school answer, Jesus. And before we do that, can I hold your questions and hold that answer? And I really want you to ask, who is this person being talked about in this passage? This person who is pierced. Now, the reason that I want us not to quickly jump to Jesus is because this is the Old Testament and the Old Testament is not just the the Bible that belongs to Christians, but this is what would be called the Hebrew Bible as well. So Jewish believers, people who do not believe Jesus was God or a Messiah or a Savior, they believe this passage as well. And the reason I want us to ask who is this person is because this is a passage that Jewish Bible readers struggle with. Because whenever they look and see someone who's being pierced, they're trying to think of, well, who might this be alluding to? And the picture of a battle beforehand. Um, Many Jewish readers want to try and say that this is actually about the revolts that took place before Jesus was born. Um, There was a revolt called the Maccabean Revolt. And some people believe that the person who is pierced in this passage is the leader of the Maccabean Revolt, who was killed by the Romans after he tried to lead a, a, a Jewish uprising that failed. The difficulty with that reading is whenever we begin to look at the, the, the description of this person who is pierced, in that he isn't just a rebel leader and he isn't just a person like you and me, but we see if you read on in, in chapter 13, verse 1, that the death of this person opens a fountain that cleanses people from sin. This person's death is sacrificial and the Christian Judeo God does not accept human sacrifice, We also see, if you look down with me, in verse 10, it says that this person who is pierced, God starts off by saying, when they look on me, drawing our eyes to look on God himself, when they look on me, and then he immediately seems to go in a different direction say, on him who was pierced. So directing your eyes to God and then to somebody else. So this person who was pierced is God, but rather strangely and bizarrely is also distinct from God in some way. He is God, but is distinct from God in some way. And if you read on further down, it says that whenever, whenever he's weeped for, he's weeped for as a firstborn. And like literally the only work time that word would ever appear is in reference to a firstborn son. So this passage is talking about somebody Who is pierced as a sacrifice, who is God but is distinct from God, who is a firstborn son in some way, and whose death brings about the cleansing of sin. And this passage of the Bible is written 500 years before the birth of Christ, at least. And once we might feel uncomfortable with that, I might want to even say, well, clearly an editor has come back and added this in so that people will eventually be duped by it into believing that Jesus is some sort of Messiah or some sort of God. If you look at the, the manuscript evidence that we have for this passage, this is one of the oldest passages we have in early manuscript form. So there's manuscripts that exist before the birth of Jesus to do with this passage. And not only that, this is a passage that will be read possibly in a synagogue today where Jesus is not worshipped. So I ask you, who is this? Because to me, I cannot help but see this as anybody other than Jesus. And it cannot be a mere coincidence that this describes Jesus with such clarity, 500 years before he is born. And if this is a coincidence, it is a coincidence that borders on being miraculous. And so my question to you this morning is if this passage, if we take it and we read it, with as neutral eyes as possible, is still able to speak with some accuracy and some prophetic vision 500 years into the future? Is it possible, or even in your mind, even simply plausible, that this book might actually be what it claims to be? That God might actually speak to us? And that if we actually entertain this idea, and don't just dismiss it, but look at the evidence that is actually presented to us through this passage there might actually be a saviour who dies for us and it's not just a story we tell our kids at night. Could it be that God is actually speaking to us through this passage? That the Bible is telling a true story of sin and forgiveness and reconciliation? That it's not all fairy tale, but that this is real? If we look at the evidence, that's where it seems to lead us. And you might say, well, that's okay, James. That's all fine and good. But what about Jesus coming along and trying to fulfill this by looking backwards, having read this passage in the synagogue as a boy and being, well, I want to be that when I grow up. And so he went back and fulfilled it uh, retrospectively. The difficulty with that is that the way Jesus dies is by crucifixion. And crucifixion in the ancient world, we have domesticated the cross in many ways. You know, the cross is something that you put on a necklace or a little wooden thing that your granny puts up on the wall as decoration. Yet crucifixion in the ancient world would have been the last way that somebody would have thought somebody of any importance would die. Because in crucifixion, what fundamentally happens is somebody is prolonged and tortured over the space of several days, and in order for you to do the mental gymnastics to treat somebody in a way that you will torture them over several days before causing them to die, not by blood loss, but by by suffocation, because each time your arms are like that, you have to pull yourself up, and so it's a very slow, painful form of death. The mental gymnastics you have to do to inflict that on a human being would mean that you would have to treat that person not as a human being but as a sub-race. This is why no great politician, no general, no soldier, no um, clerk within the government is ever crucified. It is reserved solely for the people who are deemed below everyone else in general society. The underclass. The people who the surrounding society wouldn't even just think weren't God, but wouldn't think were, they wouldn't think they were humans on the same level as themselves. This is why the cross and the idea of crucifixion was horrifying to the ancient world. We read in the Bible that Paul described it as a stumbling block to the Jews because They refused to believe that a God could ever be subjected to a death so cruel. And it's the reason why it's seen as foolishness to the Greeks. Is because to a Greek mind, the fact that God would become flesh was just ridiculous to begin with. So if Jesus wanted to make his death the hardest to believe in as possible the death he would pick would be crucifixion. And I think very few of us, if we look at what crucifixion entails, would volunteer ourselves for it to retrospectively fulfill a prophecy. This passage is confronting us with Jesus in a way that I think is incredibly difficult to dismiss. 500 years before he's even born. And so my question for you this morning is simply, Will you set this aside and dismiss it and not even think about it? Or will you entertain that there might be the slightest bit of truth and plausibility to this and that it is not just a coincidence that borders on the miraculous, that there has been one who's been pierced for our sins and whom we have a hope in at the end of the day? The final thing I just want to highlight in this passage is that there's a sense of repentance there's a mourning that takes place in this passage and that might seem quite strange to us. Why, Why mourning? You know, the passage that we've read has a battle where the people of God seem to win. We've just read a verse that talks about sin, sin being wiped away. There being forgiveness, there being hope. How, how can mourning enter into the picture? What's that thing that we all know, isn't it? We all look around us at the world and mourn in some way. How many of us have mourned at what we've seen on TV screens to do with Ukraine? How many of us are mourned with sin whenever we see what people are willing to do to other people? How many of us are mourned by sin whenever somebody undertakes us on the M1? We are mourned by sin all the time. And we think of the words of Jesus in the back of our heads in the Beatitudes where he says, blessed are those who mourn. Why? Because those who mourn know that something is not quite right. That is why a funeral is a sad affair. Because at a funeral, we know something has happened that in a perfect world would not have happened. And we mourn it. And we mourn sin. But that mourning brings us to this Saviour who is pierced for us, for our transgressions. That by resting and hoping in him, we have forgiveness and hope of a life everlasting. If all we do is, need to do is mourn and look around and long for that that could be made better. And believe, if any of you have ever read the end of the Lord of the Rings, where... Um, one of the hobbits, says to Gandalf that everything sad is about to become untrue. And that is the hope we believe as Christians. Everything sad and death itself is about to become untrue because of this one who has given his life up for us, our one saviour, Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the hope that you give us in your son, Jesus, as he's held out for us in the gospel. Lord, would we see the truth that you hold out to us in your word? Would we see that this is not just fleeting fancy, this is not just ancient stories, but this is God who has entered into space and time to redeem us to himself. Lord, fill us with that hope, for it's in Jesus' name we ask. Amen.